I uh, have been asked uh, to preach this morning. My name is Dave Bast. As John mentioned, I'm a a member here, an occasional attender. Um, (laughs) And some time ago, I think maybe last fall even, um, Kathy McConnell asked if I would be willing to preach for the Mission Emphasis Sunday, which is today. And I said, sure. And she said, just make sure you emphasize cross-cultural missions. And I said, I think I can do that. And then uh, a week or so ago, I was talking with John, and he said, well, actually, we're in a series, and we want you to preach on the Great Commission. And I said, I know I can do that. (laughs) So that's what we're going to consider And as we hear these words this morning, I want you to think of a scene like this. Uh, Many of you have small children, or children, you once had small children, and there comes a momentous evening in the life of a family when the parents are going to go out for dinner or whatever, and for the first time, they're not getting a babysitter. That, that day will come if you're still paying for babysitters, you know, every day. But it's a little bit, uh, you know, it, it's one of those times when the mother especially has written a list of instructions and is talking to the firstborn and saying, as, literally as they're out the door, she's reemphasizing certain important points, especially make sure you watch your little brother. And in a sense, these are Jesus' final instructions to us as he's on his way out the door. So today is Ascension Sunday. We do believe it happened. He is living and reigning now at the right hand of God, but just before he ascended into heaven, he wanted to remind us of what we need to do. Sue's going to read it for us. The scripture reading is from Matthew 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, even to the end of the, into the, end of the age. This is the word of the Lord. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory, our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. So Matthew ends his gospel with Jesus and his disciples. Certainly the eleven, they're mentioned, they're specified. may have been a few more, we're not told. But the eleven are there with him. And... Matthew says that when they saw him, they worshipped him, 
but some doubted, which I find rather astonishing. I mean, (laughs) they're standing there looking at Jesus, who's been raised from the dead. They've already seen him. They've eaten with him. They've touched him. He kind of comes and goes. He appears and disappears. And some are still doubting. But I think we get that, don't we? I mean, Jesus doesn't insist on 100% certitude from his followers, from his disciples. The key thing is, are we willing to follow him or not? Not, are we completely sure that we never have a question, that we never wonder at times, is it really true? The opposite of faith isn't doubt. (laughs) Doubt can very much be a part of faith. The opposite of faith is cynicism, despair, fear. So Jesus addresses his disciples with this great commission, and he doesn't distinguish among them. He doesn't say, now this is for those of you who are 100% committed. This is for those of you who are totally sure. He says to them simply, this is what I want you to do. Follow me. Do what I tell you to. Whatever may be going on intellectually, this is what it means to be my disciple. And actually, this is, this is one of the easiest texts in all the Bible to get up and preach. You don't have to go to seminary uh, to preach this text because it's really pretty straightforward. There's a claim, there's a command, and there's a promise. There it is. I'd like to spend most of my time on the claim, though, because the claim is really what it's all about. If we accept the claim, despite our questions, despite the times when we may wonder, if we accept the claim, then the rest all follows. If we don't buy the claim, then the command is not only... Uh, pointless, it's actually wrong. It's a crime against humanity to go out and try to convince the world to become Christians if the claim that Jesus makes isn't true. And the promise, as far as the promise is concerned, if the claim is false, the promise is empty. And we're on our own. So let's begin with that, the claim, audacious as it is. Jesus appears to them He comes and he says to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth. That word all runs through this whole passage. All authority, all nations, all that I have commanded you. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Authority basically means Power plus legitimacy. If you have authority, it means not only that you can tell people what to do, but it's appropriate for you to do that because your power is legitimate. In the military, they know all about authority, those who have the right to give orders to others, but there's a top authority that they refer to as the NCA, the National Command Authority. It's the White House. 
for better or worse. <laughs> it's the White House. National. Well, Jesus claims ultimate authority, universal authority. He's the UCA. Authority in heaven and on earth over this world and any other worlds there may be. You know, we, we read from time to time about uh, the SETI project, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, and they keep saying, oh, it's bound to be out there. A- actually, this, I digress here, but l- l- give me a minute. <laughs> that whole thing is premised on what I believe is an error. And the error is the belief that life simply comes by chance. It simply happens. And because the universe is so unimaginably vast, with so many millions of potential worlds, it must have happened elsewhere. I don't believe that life came about by chance, do you? (laughs) Uh, It may be that God has chosen to create life elsewhere. But if he did, Jesus is Lord of that world too. That will come as a shock if we ever do find life elsewhere in the universe. Jesus is Lord everywhere for all time, past, present, and future. You know, authority is a thread that runs throughout Jesus' life and ministry, isn't it? John already alluded to one occasion. He stood in a boat on a stormy lake, and he said to the wind and the waves, shut up. (laughs) And they did. They did. When he taught the crowds in his Sermon on the Mount, at the conclusion, Matthew says, they were astonished because he taught them with authority, not like their teachers, but with authority. When a man who was crippled was brought before him, he said to him, your sins are forgiven. And his critics stood back and said, who, what, who is this? Only God has the authority to for- forgive sins. And Jesus said, exactly. <laughs> and so that you may know who I am, I say to you, get up and walk. And he did. Little girl, rise. And she did. Lazarus, come forth. And he stumbles out, wrapped up. In his shroud, authority runs like a thread through the whole life and ministry of Jesus. Even during the days of his hiddenness and humility. But now, now the hiddenness is stripped away and Jesus stands as he is. And there's no more humility left in him. An audacious claim. Humility is inappropriate for God. Humility is appropriate for us. No more humility for Jesus. Now he tells them, and he tells them directly, all authority. All authority is mine. See, the Bible has always been about this one central story that the God who reveals himself first to Israel is nevertheless the God of the nations and that his ultimate purpose, his final plan is not just to establish a cozy relationship, God and me, 
or even God and us. But he's the God of all the earth. And he determines that one day he will bring all the earth into a relationship of life with himself. In the Old Testament, this is proclaimed over and over. Right at the very beginning, when God calls Abraham, I will bless you, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. The psalmist proclaim it. We, we recited one of the passages in our open to worship this morning. In the book of Daniel, God reveals that it will be through this awe-inspiring figure who will come one day, known as the Son of Man. So in Daniel 7, the prophet has a vision. He's, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a Son of Man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And the conviction of the New Testament from page one to the very end in, across every single book and every one of its writers is that this heavenly son of man to whom all dominion belongs and who rules over all nations is none other than Jesus of Nazareth, a sometime itinerant preacher who was crucified one Friday outside the city of Jerusalem, but who has been raised from the dead and who has been given all authority. Here's a great passage from the end of Ephesians chapter 1. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. I love that. You know, Jesus has ascended. He's not just above everything. He's far above every rival claim to power or authority. And God put all things under his feet and gave him as head over everything to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's the vision of the New Testament. That's the claim Jesus makes. Can you imagine a human being making such a claim? I mean, seriously. Any president or prime minister standing up and saying all authority and Heaven and earth is mine, therefore enact my legislation. Can you imagine the Pope at midnight mass on Christmas Eve saying, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore you better all join my church. It's absurd. <laughs> if Jesus is nothing more than a good teacher, this is absurd. What's even more astonishing is they believed it. The 11 there believed it, and they proclaimed it, and others came to believe it. And so it has gone on and on and outward and outward, and we believe it. We believe it. I do. 
So that's the claim. That's the issue, really. <laughs> Do you believe it or, or don't you? And now, then, the command, which does make sense if the claim is true, go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So again, the universality of it. There are actually, this has often been pointed out, there are four verbs or participles, action words, in these two verses. Go, make disciples, baptize, teach. One of them is central, the other three are subordinate, which sort of flesh out the central command. And the central command is to make disciples. That's the thing Jesus wants us to be doing. Make disciples of all nations, panta ta ethne. Significant word, ethne. You probably recognize that, right? So one mistake that we need to avoid is to hear the word nation and think of those colored places on a map, you know, with well-defined borders and flags and capital cities and all that. There's about 200 and uh, some odd nations in that sense. But what Jesus is really talking about is ethnic groups, peoples, uh, tribes, uh, clusters. As you might say, the nation of Iranian immigrants living in Grand Rapids. That's, that's a nation in a sense. That's a, that's a group. The nation of immigrants from Africa who've settled in West Michigan. It's as much a nation as China, which is actually, like almost every nation, a collection of nations, a collection of peoples, a collection of tribes. In fact, here's another digression. Most of the political turmoil in the world is caused by multiple nations trying to inhabit the same territory, the same country. So this is Jesus' command to us. And again, there's a universality about it because of his claim. And this is the point where most of us have a problem. How can Jesus expect us to insist that everybody in the world should become a Christian? Isn't that a little bit like insisting that there's only one right way to drive to Florida? And that if you choose a different, you know, interstate, you're somehow wrong? Isn't that a little bit like insisting everyone has to root for the same sports team? So if you support Michigan State, you're somehow beyond, you know, the pale. You're, you're an outcast, let alone Ohio State. Don't get me started on Ohio State. I'm looking at you, John. But no, seriously. It, it, it feels a little bit like that, doesn't it? Like it's chauvinistic. Who are you to insist that this great God, if there is a God, who must be the God of everyone, the God of all people, how can you insist on coming through this one way, on acknowledging this one person? The problem is that we tend to think of religious choices as a function of personal taste, of religious allegiance 
as being sort of like what kind of flavor of ice cream you prefer. You know, you may be a chocolate person. I'm a vanilla guy myself. But it's not that way. Our faith is not about personal preferences. It's about truth. Is Jesus actually this God in the flesh, risen from the dead, ascended on high to the ultimate position of power and glory and authority? Is it true or isn't it? So the real question really is whether we will align our lives with the truth that is at the core of reality or whether we will resist it. So make disciples of all the nations is the central command. And the reason we go is because they're out there. (laughs) And in order to make disciples, Jesus says there are two elements to that, baptism and teaching. Baptism, because for a non-Christian, Baptism is the decisive turning point, the, the, the critical moment at which a person turns from their old life and is incorporated into Christ and confesses their faith and allegiance to him. You've probably heard uh, the old word attributed to St. Francis of Assisi, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, if necessary, use words. You've heard that one? Apparently, St. Francis never said that. (laughs) He himself was a preacher. The truth is, you can't make a disciple without using words. As important as deeds are, a mute witness of kindness will never bring anyone to baptism. Because in baptism we confess our belief in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and we seal our allegiance to the Lordship of Christ. So it's not the end of discipleship, but it is the beginning. And our failure on this point to issue a call to conversion Uh, is a sign not of strength but of weakness. Some time ago, I I came across an address by Leslie Newbigin. Leslie Newbigin was a very influential and important uh, voice in the late 20th century church. He was a missionary for many years in India. He became an academic, a a bishop, a teacher, uh, wrote a number of good books, important books. This is from an address he gave um, to a missionary group in which he said this, the contemporary embarrassment about the missionary movement is not, as we like to think, evidence that we have become more humble. It is, I fear, much more clearly evidence of a shift in belief. It is evidence that we are less ready to affirm the uniqueness, the centrality, the decisiveness of Jesus Christ as universal Lord and Savior the way by following whom the world is to find its true goal, the truth by which every other claim to truth is to be tested, 
the life in whom alone life in its fullness is to be found. That's our message. That's our belief. So baptism and then teaching, because Jesus really is interested in disciples, not decisions for Christ. Um, Interestingly, uh, Frederick Dale Bruner has written a magisterial uh, commentary on the book of Matthew, and he suggests that, uh, verse 16 here, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. He suggests that you could actually translate that last phrase to the mountain where Jesus had instructed them. And he thinks that it was the mount where the Sermon on the Mount was delivered, that there was this kind of tying together of Jesus' instructions about what it meant to be a disciple with his final word of command to them. So we teach all that Jesus was and said and did, and we seek to follow it ourselves. That's what discipleship means. And finally, the promise, lo, I am with you, always, even to the end of the age, even to the end of the world. Could they have imagined us here together this morning almost 2,000 years later, in a place they didn't even know existed, which certainly was the ends of the earth for them. And yet, here he is, among us still, with us, in accordance with his promise, keeping his word to us, as we seek to follow him, as we seek to bear witness to him. And he is with us supremely, at the table where he offers himself again in fulfillment of his word as the way, the truth, and the life and the hope of the world. So come, let's receive him and give thanks.